0: I want to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 5 through 13 this morning. You and I live in what we could call a a pluralistic society, a society that says all beliefs and all religions, all all viewpoints and values, they're they're all equally valid. No one belief system has a corner on the market. Nobody's actually right or wrong. Everybody's right. All the truth claims are equally valid. True, And according to that view, the view of pluralism or religious pluralism, since all religions are equally true, then, then no one should actually claim to have exclusive access to God or exclusive truth from God. There's, there's a popular metaphor for religious pluralism that says it's like there's one mountain and a bunch of different paths up to the top of the same mountain. So you take Islam and Buddhism and Judaism and Christianity and maybe even atheism for all we know. They're all just different paths up the same mountain. Doesn't matter which path you take, they all lead to the same summit in the end. And that metaphor is compelling to a lot of people. It's comforting because it means you can't be wrong. you all get there in the end. That's a comfort. It's conciliatory because it means we can all just get along. We don't have to have religious debates, doctrinal debates disputes. Everybody's right. Everybody's going to the same direction. So so that's appealing to a lot of people, but pluralism has its problems. For one thing, pluralism is itself a view. It's a belief, and it's an exclusive belief about religion. It, It claims pluralism is right. This is the right way to look at all the religions of the world, namely that none of them are wrong, and anybody who looks at religions differently is wrong. So it sounds good at first until you realize actually it's claiming we're right, you're wrong, think more like us, right? Those who use that different paths up the same mountain metaphor, they sound humble at first. Everybody's going the same direction. Let's all just get along. Until you stop and you realize how would you know they're all going the same place unless you're actually above the mountain looking down on all of it And you have the view from above, and you can see that they're all leading to the same place. That is actually quite an arrogant claim. I see the whole thing. I am somehow up above the mountains, and I see it all. Besides that, pluralism assumes that all people are seeking God. Everybody's on a path toward God. Everybody's on the right mountain, generally headed in the right direction. The Bible presents a very different view of humanity, doesn't it? We've seen in this letter, we're in the book of Romans, where Paul lays out the gospel in no uncertain terms. And he says things like this in Romans 3, 10 through 12. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one, a few verses later in verse 23, he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's very different. Right? So, so is it accurate to say everyone is on his or her own unique, unique path toward God? No, to the contrary, everyone is on a path running away from God. No one is seeking God. The world is not full of basically good people meandering toward God. The world is full of people who refuse to come to God on his terms. World religions are not man's attempt to reach God. They are just another way that man rejects God. Man-made religion is a way to reject God, to refuse to need God, to say, I can be good enough on my own. And this is what Paul showed us at the end of Romans 9 and at the beginning of Romans 10 where we are today. Israel, the people of Israel, they, they were the one nation on earth God chose to be his people through them to make known his word, his law, his promises, his covenant, to provide his savior to the world. And what did Israel do with God's law? They took it and they twisted it. God's law required them to submit to God and rely on him. And what did they do? They, they turned it into a way to try to climb up above God, to exalt themselves over God. How did they do that? Paul told us in Romans 9.32, because they did not pursue it by faith. What did God's law only ever call for? Trust God, rely on God, submit to God. What do they do? They twisted it as though it were based on works, performance, merit. Paul said in Romans 10.3, being ignorant of the righteousness of God. And the kind of like guilty ignorant... Not, oops, I didn't know, but like, no, God spoke to them. He told them again and again exactly how this worked, and yet they refused to hear. So they were guilty in their ignorance, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and instead seeking to establish their own righteousness. They did not submit to God's righteousness. That's an incredible statement. It means that one way to reject God is through the overt, blatant lawlessness of things like, you know, murder and adultery And corruption, that just looks evil. It looks like godlessness. But there's another way to reject God, which is to refuse to submit to him and instead to try to be good enough on your own apart from him, which is equally lawless. Because it says, I don't need God, he needs me. And that's evil. So how can sinful humans be reconciled to God? And enjoy right relationship with God. This is the theme that comes up again and again and again in the book of Romans. This is what Paul is setting out, repeating, emphasizing so that no one misses it. Religious pluralism assumes God, if, if there is, even is a God, he doesn't care how you come. Just come however you want to. He doesn't have any preferences or thoughts about it. But according to the Bible, God does care how you approach him, how you come to him. You will either come to him on his terms and live Or you will die trying to live your life your way. And Paul, here in our text this morning, wants to make it clear the only way to come to God so that you will live. And so let's give our attention to God's word from Romans 10 verses 5 through 13 so that we might know him his way. And I want to invite you to stand if you're physically able out of our regard for God's word. He has not left us in the dark about how to know him and be right with him. He has spoken to us. This is his That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. And you've spoken. The fact that you've spoken to us through your word, revealing yourself, revealing your nature, your character, your ways, revealing to us how we might be saved, that alone tells us what you're like, that you're good and that you're generous, and then the specific words, the specific truths you've revealed here. Oh God, may our hearts be captivated by the glory of your grace and may we know you in the way that you have provided through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The main point of Romans 10, 5 through 13 is found right in the middle of the passage in verse nine. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. Right there, that phrase, you will be saved. You will be saved. How can you be saved? How can you be right with God? In a world where no one seeks God, no one is righteous, how can anyone be restored to right relationship with God? The only way, According to Scripture, to be right with God is by relying on God to work for you, to save you, not by trying to perform billable services for God that earn some payment from Him. That's my definition, my kind of functioning way of thinking about legalism. Legalism is acting as though you could perform billable services to God. You do some work, send the bill, expect the payment. That's legalism. Can't be right with God that way. Right standing with God is not something you can achieve or earn by your performance or by your merit. Right standing with God is something God gives. He gives it. He gives it freely to those who rely on him and those who submit to him. That's what we saw at the end of Romans 9, beginning of Romans 10. You either reject him, refuse to submit to him, or you rely on him, submit to him. God will not give this righteousness to those who insist on having something to boast about before him, those who want something to brag about in their own performance, So being right with God then is, it's not the exclusive privilege of some ethnic group. It's not the special advantage of the elites, the intellectual elites or the moral elites or the economic elites. Righteousness, right standing with God is a gift. It's a gift God gives, that he gives freely to anyone and everyone who relies on Jesus Christ alone. That's the heart of this passage. This has been the message of Romans from the beginning. And one more time in this text, not for the last, but once again, the fact that God says this to us again and again tells us something. I think I preached a message in Romans months ago and quoted, was it Luther? I I preach justification again and again and again because people forget it again and again and again. We have to hear it over and over because what Israel teaches us is the tendency of every human heart is to rely on ourselves, to earn something from God. So we need to hear this, and God wants you to hear this to convince you to abandon all self-reliance and just to forsake, again, every temptation to take pride in yourself, your performance. God means to convince you to rely on Christ. And and that might be for some of you, for the very first time that you come to see, I've never submitted to Jesus as the Lord of my life. Some of you, maybe for the first time, and for those of you who have been walking with Christ for years and for decades, God means to fortify your faith and increase and strengthen your faith in Jesus. And, And here's what I love about this text. How does God strengthen your faith? How does he convince you to trust him? In these verses, he does that by revealing to you how extravagantly generous he is by revealing to you how good he is. He wants you to see his lavish generosity in Christ so that you would be inclined to trust him, so that you would know it is his heart to do this for you. He wants to. He's for you. He loves you. He loves to give you good things. According to this text, God freely lavishes the riches of his saving grace on everyone who relies on Christ. Freely without reservation. He pours out a super abundance of grace on everyone and anyone who relies on Christ. And the more you see the glory of God's generous grace to you in Christ, the more your own heart is inclined to trust him. This week, you are going to have moments of unbelief, lapses of faith, points where you are tempted to rely on yourself and not on God, points when you might Struggle to trust that the promises of God are true for you. And what you need in those moments to overcome that unbelief is the assurance God means it. He wants to keep his promises to you. He's fully capable of keeping his promises to you. So that this entire sermon gets summed up in this single sentence. God gives the riches of Christ to all who believe. God gives the riches of Christ to all who believe. We're going to take in those three parts. The riches of Christ to all who believe. The riches of Christ to all who believe. Beginning with the riches of Christ. Look at verse 12 with me. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Bestowing his riches. That's where I get this word. The King James says, the same Lord over all is rich unto all. The same Lord over all is rich unto all. The New American Standard says, the Lord is abounding in riches The Lord Jesus Christ is rich. He is rich. That word means to possess an overabundance of something, a a superfluous amount of something. So what does he possess? What is he rich in? What are the riches of Christ? Well, in Romans 2.4, Paul told us that God is rich in kindness, forbearance, patience. In the previous chapter here, Romans 9.23 it says that God's purpose in history is to make known the riches of his glory to vessels of mercy. God means to make known the riches of his glory. He is extravagantly rich in glory. According to Ephesians 2:4, God is rich in mercy. Ephesians 2:7, the reason God saves sinners is why so that in the coming ages, that means forever and ever and ever, he might show the immeasurable riches if you're an accountant, bean counter, you can't count his riches. They are immeasurable, infinite. What, what are they? The riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. He's rich in kindness, patience, mercy, glory, grace. Jesus, who is God, possesses infinite supplies of mercy and grace and kindness. So when verse 12 says the Lord bestows his riches on all who call on him, it means he freely lavishes his infinite riches of saving grace on those who need saving grace. That's what it means. When the Lord bestows his riches, he saves sinners. That's what this text says. Verse 9, if you confess and believe, you will be saved. That is an expression. That is the Lord bestowing from his riches. You will be saved. Verse 10, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Salvation is at the heart of this passage. How can you be saved? Saved from what? Well, according to Romans 5, 9, saved from God's holy wrath against sin. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Saved from wrath, saved from the punishment and destruction that your sin deserves. According to 1 Corinthians 1.18, saved from perishing. Paul says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So those two are set in contrast. To be saved is the opposite of to perish and die in your sin. 1 Corinthians 5, 5, we're saved from destruction and judgment. Ephesians 2, we're saved from sin and death. When Jesus bestows his riches, he is saving. He's saving people out of sin and death, saving you from eternal damnation, which your sins deserve. According to Romans 10, when the Lord bestows his riches, he is giving the gift of righteousness to those who are not themselves righteous. Verse 10 says, with the heart one believes and is justified. Literally, it says, with the heart one believes unto righteousness. That's the question Paul's been raising and asking. How do you get righteousness? The Jews tried to establish their own. They did not submit to God's. But those who believe, believe unto righteousness. That is one of the gifts God gives out of his riches. The, the word righteousness is used nine times from Romans 9.30 to chapter 10, verse 13. This couple paragraphs. He uses the word righteousness nine times. How do you get that? And the answer is you either try to achieve it yourself or you receive it as a gift God gives generously. Righteousness is a gift God gives it out of the riches of his glory. And what does that mean to be counted righteous? Just to remind you, I I think this is one of the clearest definitions in Scripture, Romans 4, 6 through 8. In this letter, Paul says, David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. What is that blessing? What's that gift of righteousness God gives? Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That's it. When God gives you righteousness, it means he grants you the full and complete pardon of all your sins. He doesn't count any of your sins against you. All your lawless deeds are forgiven. All your sins are are washed away. And he bestows that. He gives it out of his lavish generosity. These are the riches of Christ. And Finally, in verse 11, Paul speaks of the riches of God's saving grace. One more way, he says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. What does it mean to to not be put to shame? It's not talking about never being embarrassed, like the kind of embarrassment you feel if you're walking through the cafeteria and you trip and your food goes all over the place. It's not talking about you will never have an embarrassing moment in your life. It's talking about the shame of standing before God and having all of your sin exposed and having no excuse. No defense. It's talking about finding out to your utter horror and embarrassment that everything you built your life on was worthless. And you have nothing. That would be to be put to shame. Spend your entire life building up your reputation, your name, your finances, your success, and you come to find out none of it can ransom your soul from death. That would be shame. But those who trust in the Lord will be vindicated. They will not be disappointed. They will not be put to shame. Their their hope will prove true. They will rely on God and he will come through for them. That's what it means. You will not be disappointed if you trust in God to satisfy you. So, So salvation and gift righteousness and vindication, not being put to shame on the day of judgment, these are the riches of God's grace that he generously offers and, and what you need to know in seeing all of these as the riches of Christ is that this is the heart of God toward you. This is His character. This is His disposition. God's grace is not meager. It's not scarce. He doesn't ration it out begrudgingly. you come to God for the grace and mercy that you need, it doesn't look like some of the grocery store shelves these days. No more cream cheese. It's gone. He doesn't run out. He's not just giving you, here's just enough, take no more because I'm trying to make, you know, keep enough to go around. His grace is not spreadly thin over his people like not enough butter on too much toast. He pours it out richly, extravagantly. And you need to know that because if you think God is holding back, that his arms are crossed, that he's scowling at you, the way you relate to him will be completely wrong. But but if you see him as extravagantly generous, then you come to him in your need again, and again, and again, and again, knowing there's always going to be enough. More than enough for you. So who are these riches for? The riches of Christ are to all. Stop. There's more to say about that, but just just take that for now. In verses 11, 12, and 13, Paul repeatedly emphasizes the universal offer of salvation. Listen, verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone. Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all. Pluralism gets a sliver right. Right? There's got to be a way for anyone in the world to be right with God. Yes, there's no distinction, no ethnic preference or priority. The same Lord is the Lord of all. All, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The riches of Christ are available to all. Period. This is a crucial clarification, especially coming out of Romans 9, which unequivocally, unequivocally says of God, he has mercy. This is Romans nine eighteen. He has mercy. Mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. That's true. But from the fact that God is sovereign in salvation and he is completely free to have mercy on whoever he wants to and you can't manipulate him to have mercy on you and you can't earn it from him, some people come away from that thinking hard thoughts about God, having the wrong perception of God. When you hear that God prepares some to be vessels of wrath, as Romans 9.22 clearly says, you start to think, I'm sure I'm one of those. I must be a vessel of wrath. Or when you hear that God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills, you assume that means God therefore is stingy. He probably has mercy on only a very few and he has wrath on the vast majority. That's not what it says though. Some of you may relate to God as though he is unreasonably harsh, reluctant to forgive you unrelentingly critical. So you have this gnawing fear. God is like an IRS auditor who's just waiting to nail you on a technicality. Gotcha. You missed that one. And for some of you, you just have no problem believing, yes, God can save other people. I just don't know that he can save me. My sin. So you just wrestle with this lack of assurance When you hear everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, you figure that means everybody except you. So listen, the point of Romans 9, God's freedom to have mercy on whomever he wants to, was not to then set you on a quest. Okay, now you go find out. You go probe the secret things of God and try to get into his mind and into his book of life and and see if you are a vessel of wrath or a vessel of mercy. No, the, the point was just to say when God saves, he does all the work. He does all the saving. He has mercy. There's no other way. You can't earn it. It's not by your exertion. The only alternative would be, I mean, would you rather have it be, no, I want to be saved by my effort. Watch out. That's what Israel did, and they were lost. Do not insist on being right with God through your exertion, or you will be as lost as Israel. It's good news that it depends only on God's mercy and not on you, because that means it's a gift Either you earn it or it's a gift. So who are the riches of Christ for? Everyone. All. All. Everyone. Verses 11 through 13. That the universal availability of the gospel, that, that's, that's good news. Okay. So that means when you hear the gospel, you should think, I should believe that. I should not write myself off. I should not hear that and say, well, I bet I'm a vessel of wrath. I bet I'm not elect. I bet I wasn't predestined. No, you should hear the gospel and you should believe it. And that's what matters, you personally knowing your sins are forgiven. And look at this in verse 9. If you confess with your mouth. Before I go on, I want to point out, Paul is using here, this is important in the grammar, in English you can't always tell, is you singular or plural? Because we use you for both. You and your. Is Paul saying, if you all, y'all, confess and believe? Or is he saying, if, if you And he's using the singular here, which is much less common. Usually, since he's writing to entire churches, he uses the plural, you, which makes sense because his audience is a whole bunch of people. It's a whole church, so I'm saying to all of you. But here, he narrows in with the personal, second person singular, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you you will be saved. That is an invitation. Fill in your name. If you, Ryan, believe, you will be saved. the, The book of life, God has not given that to us. That's a secret thing, so you can't go look up in the book to say, oh, I found my name, so now I have assurance. This is the assurance God gives you. He tells you in his word, This is for you who believe. You will be saved. Fill in your name. No one who hears the gospel should think, that's not for me. That must not be for me. You don't need to waste a single second of your life wondering, am I elect? Has God chosen me from before the foundation of the world? I don't know. I can't figure it out. Of course you can't. That's in the mind of God. That's what He did. He's told us that's what He did, but He hasn't revealed the list of names. He's just made the gospel known to the world. Believe. If you believe, you will be saved. So what should you do? How how do you receive that? Well, it goes on. It is to all, to everyone, and there's a condition. To all who believe. Look at verse 9. The riches of Christ to all who believe. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess, if you believe, you will be saved. That's a conditional statement. If then, if you confess, if you believe, then you will be saved. If you don't, you won't. Same thing in verse 11. Everyone, condition, who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone who believes the implication is, if you don't believe, you will be put to shame. You will find that whatever else you were hoping in, trusting in, will come to nothing. Verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Don't call in his name, you will not be saved. So, enjoying the riches of Christ, th- there is a condition. Which is not the same thing as meriting anything. Trusting in Jesus does not earn, does not deserve, does not merit anything from God. Wages, paycheck, that's earned. Gifts are just received because they're gifts. Paul makes this point in Romans 4, 4 through 5. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. That's easy enough to follow, right? To the one who does not work, but believes, trusts, relies on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It's a gift given from the infinite riches of God's grace. And you see how that works? Believing in God is is not a service you render to God that you can charge Him for. Look at me believing. Doesn't that help you out? Now pay me back. Trusting in God is just relying on God. You're not doing anything for Him. You're trusting Him to work for you. But believing, trusting, relying is the exact opposite of working for God. It's relying on Him to work for you. Think of it like a surgeon would say to a patient, just trust me, trust my skill, I can heal you. You do have to trust me by showing up on the day of your appointment for your surgery. You'd have to come and lay down on the operating table. And to the patient who trusts, right? Some might come in just all full of trepidation. I'm so worried about this, I'm not sure how this is going to go. But they show up and they lay down and they, you know, put them out. The faith of the patient doesn't cause the healing, right? The surgeon does that to the one who trusts his skill and shows up. If you don't trust him, you don't come, you will, not, you will not benefit from his skill and experience and expertise. Trust, that's the condition. This is what Paul's getting at in verse 6 when he paraphrases Deuteronomy. He's, he's quoting the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 30, 12 through 14. And he says, the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, don't think this way. And That's Paul's paraphrase. It doesn't... Deuteronomy doesn't have that command, but Paul adds that in for emphasis. Don't think like this. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. You cannot be right with God by performing heroic feats for God. Think how absurd it is to imagine you could ascend into heaven to go get Jesus and bring him down. You see the backwards, messed up thinking there? I'm going to climb into heaven, and I'll go get Jesus and bring him down for everybody. Wait, so who's helping who here? (laughs) Clearly, the person who thinks that way does not think they need Jesus. They think Jesus needs them. He's stuck up there. Let me go get him. Don't think you can go down into the grave and bring him back up. Let me go get him for everybody. Who's helping who? That's the wrong direction. I will work for God. I will help him out because he needs me to do something for him. It is wicked to relate to God like that. Look again at verse 12. The same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Which direction does the help flow? The resources, the riches? He will be the giver. He will do all the giving. He will do all the helping. He will do all the saving and the healing. He's not looking for anybody to perform, you know, Mount Everest climbing kind of feats for him. He is the benefactor. God is, and he will not allow anyone to treat him as though he is the beneficiary. He will get all the glory by giving, which is why as soon as you try to flip it around and work for him, you lose all the benefits. He's just not going his gifts are not for sale. You can't buy them. God is rich, you are poor. God gives, you receive. That's the order. So how do you receive? you believe. And every verse from 9 through 13, verse 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, everyone repeats that. Believe, believe, believe. Verse 9, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you will be saved. Verse 10, with the heart, one believes and is justified. With the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Verse 11, everyone who believes in him, Confess and believe. Believe and confess. Those are not two separate things. That's, that's one and the same thing. The point is, saving faith is a whole person response to God. It's not just something you, you think in your heart that has no bearing on your life. You, you believe it in your heart, and it comes out, your lips, comes out as a confession. But it, it can't either just be the lip service externally. I'll just say this. I'll rehearse this truth without actually meaning it and believing it. The, the two go together. Confess and believe. Believe and Confess. Verse 12, he bestows his riches on all who call on him. Calling on him is another way of talking about belief. Verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That, what do you do when you call out for help? You are admitting, I'm the needy one. I have nothing. Rescue me. Help me. Calling on the name of the Lord is another way to speak of that, that posture of just complete Reliance, dependence on God. The Psalms are full of this language. I'll just show you one from Psalm 116, verses 3 through 4. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Okay, get that picture? That, that's the kind of situation somebody's in who does some crying out. Distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. I called on the name of the Lord. I was dying I called. He rescued. So you must believe. Believe what? At the heart of all of it is this truth. A person. Verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The, the substance of saving faith is Jesus Christ himself. The resurrected ruler of the world. This is important because if you don't get this right, then you think that it's faith that saves you if you believe you will be saved. You will be saved, but it wasn't the faith that saved you. Like a kid jumping off of the deck of a pool to his father who says, jump and I'll, I'll catch you. If he says, jump and you will not drown, the not drowning is not due to the child, it's due to the father, Right? The jumping is the expression of faith. If, if you rely on Jesus, you're not going to be disappointed because it's Jesus, the risen Lord of heaven and earth. Saving faith involves knowing certain facts about Jesus and agreeing that those are true, that he is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. And wrapped up in that, being raised from the dead is the truth that he died for your sins. He paid for them as your substitute. He lived a perfect life in your place. That's where this righteousness gift comes from. God raised him from the dead. But saving faith goes beyond just knowing that Jesus lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose from the dead. It goes beyond even agreeing with that. It means submitting to him as the king of your life. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. You rely on him. As the Lord of heaven and earth, you will be saved. Jesus' resurrection means he is the reigning king of the world. Paul said this back in Romans 1.4 in his very introduction, the opening statement of the entire letter, Jesus, who was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. His resurrection means he is the Lord. So that's what our confession is. You are my Lord, and I rely on you, trust in you, for all of my security, all of my satisfaction, all of my hope is in you and you alone. And I forsake hope in myself and anything else. So are you relying on Jesus for all your satisfaction and security now and forever? There's a a moment, I only know about this through the words of J.I. Packer in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. He says there's, there's a great moment in the Holy Communion service of the Church of England, Anglican Church, when the minister utters the the comfortable words they're called in the anglican book of church prayer this goes back centuries comfortable words first the congregation confesses their sin to god and then the minister turns to face the people and he proclaims to them the comfortable words meaning comforting words and just rehearses a list of five or six promises from God. Promises that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is the great assurance that we have. These promises in Romans 5 through 13 are some of the most comfortable words in the Bible. And the fact that Paul just, boom, one after the other, lays them out, all who call on him will be saved. Everyone who believes will be saved. There's no distinction. He pours out his riches on all who trust. So memorize these words for the joy of your soul, for the assurance of your heart. Memorize these comforting words. Meditate on them and pray over them, but above all, believe them. That's what they're here for. They are here to be believed. Trust these words with full assurance that God is extravagantly generous and is eager, happy, (laughs) joyful to pour out on you the riches of His saving grace. And don't doubt for a minute. And when you do doubt, repent because it's wrong to doubt God. That's sin. Turn, trust Him, and believe. You will not be disappointed. You will not be put to shame. You will be saved. Let's pray. a generous God you are. That you would give us such promises to cling to, to stake our lives on. That when we sin or when we doubt or when we wonder, is this for me? You've given us Romans 10, 5 through 13, that we might know this is for us. Oh God, may we be a people deeply convinced that you are a generous God, that you love to give, that you give extravagantly. You are free in your mercy. You're not constrained by anyone. And what you choose to do with your freedom is just pour it out lavish grace and mercy on all who would rely on you. We are relying on you now, knowing we will not be put to shame. So make yourself known to us and satisfy our hearts in Christ Jesus this morning, we pray in his name, amen.